I want to take you back into Paul's letter to the Ephesians today. We are um, unpacking, over the last couple of weeks, we've been examining a, a particular passage in which Paul's really considering some of the great um, temptations that the believers face, but particularly sexual temptation. And so last week we began by reading from verse 3 to verse 8 of Ephesians 5 in a passage that is really probably the most direct and um, in many ways I think one of the most difficult passages in the entire letter. Not necessarily difficult to understand, but difficult to hear. And it led to much discomfort for us all, I think, in terms of just hearing the directness with which the apostle speaks into areas of sexual holiness, sexual morality as God's people. And I want to come back to that same passage, but we're going to read on a little further as the tone slightly shifts in terms of Paul's encouragements and exhortations towards the believers. So let's read from Ephesians 5 verse 8 and we'll read down to verse 14. In verse 8, he had said that at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in, in the Lord. And then the exhortation begins. He says, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, all of us, I think, myself included, feel the discomfort of what we were confronted by in terms of Paul's directness um, in the passage that we were looking at last week, which began, if you recall, verse 3, where he said, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. And of course, in Paul's mind is the biblical, ethical um, standard to do with sexual behavior, uh, which in the teaching of Christ not only um, incorporates what you do with your body, but also what looks in your heart. And Paul spoke into this because he's speaking into a, a culture, as I said, that was in many ways sexually dysfunctional in the city of Ephesus and among the, the wider kind of pagan world that these Christians had come from and then converted out of into the Christian faith to become disciples of Jesus. And so Paul would have been negligent in his duties as a preacher and as an apostle if he didn't address those areas at which the believers felt most tested, most challenged. And I think for that reason, in many ways, the, 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 the force of the passage is as relevant to us right now as it was back then in terms of its directness, in terms of its clarity and starkness on these things. And all of us, I think, felt some discomfort with this. And it's normal to feel that in a sense. I think one of the things that we have wrongly um, begun to believe in the Western world, at least, is that discomfort is inherently wrong that it's wrong to feel offense, and in fact, it's wrong to perpetrate offense against somebody else. But of course, that is not a standard that the biblical authors believe or hold themselves to. They're more interested in truth and disclosing the truth. And of course, there's good ways and bad ways to do that. But Paul could never be accused of in any way um, curtailing or, or, or sort of um, making the truth easy to, easy to bear or easy to hear, easy to swallow. On the contrary, he's very direct. And in this area, perhaps more than any other, I think I could say. And to my mind, that's a mark of authenticity. It's a mark of his integrity as a preacher, as a communicator of God's thoughts to us. He says that about his own ministry, in a sense, in First Thessalonians 2. He said about his preaching that just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel... So we speak not to please man, because that's a great temptation always, isn't it, when he was traveling from place to place seeking to win people to his cause, to be a people pleaser, to want to say to people what they want to hear in order to 
to elicit their interest and ultimately their commitment to the cause. But he says, we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And he goes on and says, we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Again, he could easily have butted up the people listening to him, layering on um, comforts and, and compliments that make people feel great about themselves. And that was never Paul's approach. He comes in with a very direct and cutting way of speaking. Finally, he says here, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. He's saying, ultimately, we weren't trying to get people's praise. We were, come, we were coming to you with a sense of being the ambassadors of the living God, entrusted with the gospel. And to my mind, that is, of course, one of the great reasons why we have to pay attention to the Apostle Paul. It's a mark of his integrity and of his authenticity that he speaks to us with clarity and directness into issues that ultimately lead us to a sense of confrontation with the truth. And that is obviously true when we're thinking about the specific issue of sexual morality and holiness. Why the discomfort, though, on this particular passage? And I think really it was in these couple of verses in the middle here where Paul said in verse 5 and 6 of Ephesians 5, that everyone who's sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now, it won't be any surprise to you that the Bible includes language of God's wrath or anger against sin. It won't be a surprise to you that there is language around judgment as well. But it's not the mere fact that those words and ideas are there in this passage that is surprising. What is surprising is that he's writing these things to professing Christians. He's not speaking in the open air, as he often did, to people who were outside the church, trying to elicit a sense of um, shame or guilt that might drive them to the grace of God in the gospel. He's not doing that. He's rather speaking to people within the context of the church family. The letter would have been read much like in a forum like this, to God's people. And what he's therefore doing is something a little bit more shocking. He's not, by the way, as I said last week, implying that it's possible if you are a follower of Jesus and genuinely part of God's family that you could ever lose the salvation that God has given to you. That is not what I believe he's saying here. But rather what he's wanting is that people will come to the honest recognition that if their life directly contradicts their profession, there is at least the possibility that the profession was never real to begin with. And that's something that the Lord Jesus Christ himself addresses in a number of places in, his go in the Gospels. You hear on his lips, teaching that seeks to peel away the, 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 uh, the film of self-deception that colors how we view ourselves. One example of that is in Matthew chapter 13, where he tells the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds. And it's, the story goes something like this. He says, a man owned a field, and he sowed seeds in his field, and expecting a crop, he left and uh, allowed the crop to grow. But then his enemy came in and sowed tares, or weeds, among the wheat. And as his laborers began to observe the plants growing in the field, they suddenly were aware of this mixture, that it wasn't just a single crop as it ought to be, but there was a mixture of weeds and of wheat within the one field. And they asked the master, what should we do? Should we pull out the weeds? And he says, no, wait until harvest time. And Christ, when he's interpreting this parable to his disciples, he says that the field is the kingdom. And the seed is the son of man preaching the gospel. And what's implied there, in the way he explains it, he says that over time the, the crops will grow and at the end of time there'll be a sifting as the harvest comes in and they'll separate the wheat from the tares. And the implication is not so much that there'll be a judgment of the world, which of course is part of Christ's teaching, but rather that there'll be a judgment of the church and of us. And the shocking reality that Christ is bringing to the front there is that it's possible that within the context of the family of God, there are those whose profession is not real. 
And of course, that's a deeply sobering thought to sit with. Now, it oughtn't disturb those of you who are genuinely seeking after God. But it really should disturb you if you know that your life is in no way aligning with your confession. And if you are not experiencing that disturbance, that's the problem here, not the fact that you may be uncomfortable. And where does this leave us then? Now, when a person is confronted by the biblical ethics on sexual morality, which is perhaps one of the the areas in which the, the teaching around what it means to be a disciple of Christ runs most violently into conflict with the message of the world around us. When you see this confrontation or hear this, uh, the call to follow Jesus completely, a number of responses can take place in your heart. There will be those of you who want to reject it altogether, who say, listen, uh, whatever Christ claims to offer me, it's not good enough because ultimately I don't want to say no to the indulgence of my desires. And I respect that. I think just being honest is important in this regard. And there are certainly many people who have heard the call of Christ and look, consider the cost and decided to walk away. And that's a valid response to Jesus. I don't think it's the right one, but it is a valid one. Then there's a whole group of people who feel something of the conflict taking place within their own heart as they feel the pull and the push in both directions. Jesus is appealing. He draws you. You hear his voice. You want to follow him. But at the same time, there is a sense of loss And you cannot quite bear the loss. You cannot quite say no to those things that that you want to hold on to. And so that in the midst of the conflict, you're in a very dangerous place. It's It's not a conflict you should run away from. It's one that you should head, enter into head first and understand fully what's going on in your own soul. And then, of course, there are those of us who feel the call to follow Jesus And hear warning passages like this one in Ephesians 5, and they become extra fuel and motivation to run harder and faster after the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, having given this warning then to these believers around the danger of being those who indulge things which they know are displeasing to God and yet lie to themselves thinking that they are actually part of God's family, he says, you're not. You need to come to recognition of this fact. God wants to save you. Now he begins these positive encouragements, and the way he begins to exhort and stir and, and, and awaken desire within the believers, these are the things that I'm interested in today. If you are somebody who's in that kind of middle category of being conflicted, and the pull and the push of the different desires are, are making war in your soul, listen to the appeal of the apostle. If you're a believer, listen to the appeal of the apostle. Our calling is to to hear what God has to say to us and and to want to be stirred up by the exhortation towards holiness and the desire to live for God. The question I'm asking then, what are these these exhortations, and perhaps more accurately, what are the evidences or markers of authentic discipleship that really come out in the way Paul describes um, the life that's running after God? How how can you exhibit um, reality and authenticity as a child of light, to use Paul's phrase here, when he says, walk as children of light. What are the markers of your life if you are somebody who's running after Jesus and saying no to those things that displease him? This is the question I want to ask with you. Now, the first answer to that question is that your aim is to please God. If you are a child of light, this phrase that comes through in verse 8, walk as children of light. The aim that, that drives you is a desire to please God. Listen to what he says here. He says, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that's good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, he's assuming there that longing exists within you. If that isn't true of you, obedience is impossible. And I'll explain why. When you think about the areas in your life where you experience the most acute temptation, where you are most sorely tempted, and for each of us, the battle is waged in different parts or different areas of temptation, none of us are exactly alike in this regard. 
For some, it's areas of consumption and greed. For others, it's this whole aspect of sexual morality. It can be, it can be um, alcohol. It can be all kinds of things in your life where you experience temptations and, and the, the different um, battles waging in your soul. When you consider the areas in which you're most sorely tempted, why, why is it such an agony? Why is the temptation so powerful? The answer is obvious, isn't it? It's because temptation is offering you something you want. It's not offering something you don't want or else it wouldn't be tempting. It's offering you something you actually want. A measure of satisfaction or pleasure or happiness that you've come to believe is necessary to you. And so this means that saying no to sin, saying no to temptation, which is implicit within the call to follow Christ, involves a measure of pain. Being a disciple of Jesus involves a measure of pain. That there is something in the self-denial, something in the, the agony of the refusal to to indulge what part of you desires and wants that is painful. And all of us have experienced and encountered that, the pain of no. Jesus was very clear on this, I think, in the imagery he used when he said how necessary it is if you want to to kill desires and lustful desires in you, he said to, to gouge out your eye, to cut off your limb. And of course, he doesn't mean it in the literal sense, but what he does mean is that there is a violence involved, a violence even against yourself involved in the commitment to say yes to Jesus. And again, this is an area in which I think our culture has come to believe perhaps that the worst possible sin that you can commit is a sin against yourself and against your own desires. But the Bible says, no, 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 it is absolutely necessary that you are crucified your desires are crucified in order, and you die in order that you can follow Jesus. And is there pain in there? Of course there is pain in there. Nobody endures pain, though, without good reason, do they? We've all seen, haven't we, the transformation that takes place between the announcement of an engagement and the year or 18 months or six months, however long it takes, until the wedding day. And how both the bride and the groom uh, seem to undergo very often a radical physical transformation as they prepare themselves for the wedding day. Of course, why, the question I want you to think is, why didn't it happen earlier? Well, because it's hard. It's painful keeping your body in shape. The self-denial, the exercise, all the kinds of things that are involved with that. And the only way that you can, some, some of us can do it consistently is by having some greater motivation that makes the pain worth it. And of course, as soon as the weddings happen, that motivation evaporates, and then, you know. Nobody can follow Jesus and say no to sin unless you have within you a deeper, more powerful, stronger, more compelling motive to choose him. And it seems to me that if you ask the question, what is the weightiest, most powerful, most compelling motive that drives the believer towards God? Perhaps we could draw on a number of things that the New Testament tells us, but one of them, one of them is this longing to please the Father. And maybe this is what's been absent in you. If you have only been interested in godliness insofar as it allows you to make a good appearance towards others, then of course, of course, all that you have reaped from that is hypocrisy. If our only desire is the desire to be acceptable and to be approved by other people, and that can have an effect on your behavior, but if that's all it is, then you'll only ever become a faker and a hypocrite because what you are on the outside will not match the inner desires of the heart. And similarly, if all that has compelled you to this moment has been the desire just to feel better about yourself, and I think some people want to live a better life just so that they can feel better about themselves, 
But that's not enough either. And all that that can ultimately produce in you is a sense of pride. So doing this for other people or even doing it for yourself can never be enough. The only thing, the only driver, the only desire I think that ultimately can compel a person to consistently choose Jesus and say no to the things which would pull them away from him has to be this deeper longing to bring pleasure to the Father who loves you. And it is the most superior desire. Because what I'm describing to you here is a relational motivation, not a religious one. This isn't religious performance. We're all sick of that, aren't we? This is, this is a father-child relationship underpinned by love and affection. It's the longing to sit for your father to say, well done, and to take pleasure in you. And all through the New Testament, there are so many verses in which the apostles either describe their own motive as one of wanting to bring pleasure to God. I read to you one from First Thessalonians, Thess- I can't say this word, Thessalonians 2, right at the start of the sermon. But also, in the way they exhort people all the way through, there are exhortations like this one we see here. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And of course, those words only land on the heart of a person who says, yes, I want that. I want my life to bring pleasure to the Father. He's put me on here for his own pleasure, and I want to serve him. I want to ask you, is that true of you? Maybe the reason that you have failed or are failing is because you're still so concerned with yourself. And what we're describing here is the turning outwards of your life and concern towards God, recognizing that you live under his gaze and for his glory. Is it true of you? Does the love of God and the pleasure that he takes in you as his child, is that what compels you to want to choose him over all of the the filth and sewage and mess that we could find ourselves in in this world? If not, if that is not true of you, then obedience will be a drudgery. It will. Your Christian life cannot go anywhere. It will remain cold, it will remain static, inert, dead even, lifeless. And so before you can obey, before you can can seek to put things to death in you that have felt so powerful and so compelling, before you can do that, you need to know the love of God as your Father first and foremost. And it seems to me that without that it's impossible. Walk as children of light he says. Jesus says, I am the light. We're speaking here about the experience of sonship in which you walk under the love and affection and of the, of the, the Son of God. Are you, is that true of you? If not, that's what you need ultimately, fundamentally. Come to him. But if it is true of you, yes, you'll still struggle. You'll still lapse. You'll still trip and stumble and sometimes you'll fall. But there will be this deeper compulsion that calls you after him, relentlessly pushing you and pulling you towards the Lord Jesus Christ. It'll be not unlike that experience. You ever stand on one of those travelators in an airport? Remarkable things. You can stand still and you're still moving. You can even walk backwards and you're still moving in the other direction because you are being drawn along. And that's the experience of being a genuine follower of Jesus. Sometimes you're still, sometimes you're actually in rebellion, but ultimately Christ is calling you to himself. And moments when you're walking in the direction, the right direction, you are flying. This is a marker. Your aim is to please God. Is this true of you, brother, sister? And if it isn't, what is missing? I want to just focus quickly on this one word, though, here, where he says, try and discern what is pleasing to the Lord. It's a beautiful description of the intention and focus within the life of the authentic disciple. This word discern means to gather all the evidence and make an accurate judgment. And what he's saying here is that the Christian life is one of consistently trying to data gather, understand the mind and the heart of the living God so that you can make wise and good decisions moment by moment, day by day, year by year, throughout the course of your life. And I'm trying to to ask you, Friends, is this true of you? When you consider the overarching arc of your life and the calling that you're pursuing in life, the direction where you see yourself in 20, 30, 40 years' time, is your fundamental desire and drive, I want to please him. And when you are 
wrestling in the day-to-day with the challenges of living a godly life? Is this what calls you to your knees again before the Father? I want to please you, Lord. This has to be present in you. And if it isn't present in you, I want you to examine your heart and ask yourself, have I ever really known what it is to be a child of God? Am I even a Christian? And in answering that question, there isn't fear because it gives hope. It gives you the opportunity to say yes to Christ and know the love of Christ in a way that you have never encountered before and the transforming power that comes from that. Your aim is to please God. Here's the second thing. You're willing then to expose sin. There's something so radical, as I already said, almost violent about this, but certainly determined and willing to count the cost. Listen to what Paul says from verse 11. He says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Hear this word, expose. Expose them. He says, For it's a shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, there it is again, it becomes visible. Now, I want us to think about this. This is, again, a mark of a of a follower of Jesus, is this willingness to be exposed by the truth and to expose sin. Think about this against the backdrop, because remember, I'm asking, what are the marks of authentic discipleship? Think about how much we tend to despise inauthenticity. We do, don't we? When, you know, I don't know if you follow the news, but I try and keep roughly abreast of what's taking place. And whenever a new story breaks of some top-layer politician who has been fudging their taxes, there is, of course, a right response of annoyance or even anger at that behavior because you recognize that it's something very inauthentic. That person puts himself up and seeks election on the basis of pursuing the public good, but then privately is denying the public good. It makes you call into question whether the, 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 uh, the desire, the aim to serve people was genuine in the first place. And of course, the answer is no, it wasn't. There was some other reason they ended up in politics, and it wasn't for the good of the nation. The same is true when you see inauthenticity in celebrities who love to go along with the latest cause. And, you know, of course, these days it's, it, we, we're seeing celebrities show up at the, the kind of Extinction Rebellion rallies and the green protests. And there was just a story a, a year or two back of the, you know, the big holdup that took place in the center of Oxford Street at Oxford Circus where they put this big fake boat in the middle of the street and stopped all the traffic and all that. And there on the microphone was a famous actress who'd arrived by private jet. And you just, the, the obvious inconsistencies here are infuriating. You know, you know she's probably going to go home to an oversized mansion that requires plenty of fossil fuels to keep hot. And you just think that the, the ability to live inconsistently almost boggles the mind. And of course, this is true in our observation when we look around us and we see people who claim to be followers of God, claim to be believers in Jesus, but their life doesn't match their profession. We don't like inauthenticity. It is repulsive to us. But if it's repulsive when we see it in others, isn't it so much more repulsive when we see it in ourselves? We despise it in ourselves. Think about the words he uses here when he says it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Secrecy and shame are so bound together, aren't they? And they can be bound together in your own experience. I think the reason why living a double life or a life that's not consistent with your calling is a miserable life is because it, it gives you the feeling that you are divided. Like you, you can be cut into segments. You're conflicted internally. There are different parts of you so that there isn't a consistency in your life from inside to outside. And the Scriptures are clear on this, that this is, in in many ways, the definition of spiritual sickness. The division of heart. I think that the Bible talks about this through the lens of a kind of spiritual adultery, because adultery is that, that split affection, isn't it? Where you're 
your commitment and your covenant are with one person, but your affections and, and, uh, and actions are towards another person. You think of the man who goes and commits adultery with a woman who is not his wife, and then comes home and kisses his wife and his children at night. To, you know, the division of heart leads to the deepest kinds of misery and self-loathing, ultimately, even if there is temporary pleasure within that. And it's a picture for us of what it's like to try and live the Christian life when you are divided. You cannot be happy. You cannot be content. You cannot know the life and the love of God in its fullness on you. There are parts to you. The opposite is also true, by the way, that our longing is to become integrated, to become a whole, to become one in desire, mind, and soul. And so the mark of the true Christian here is this, this, this longing for this exposure. And I think this, what he's describing here, because there are two different ways, the two verses here that he uses, he says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. When anything's exposed by the light, it becomes visible. He's describing here a life that isn't marked by fakery or hypocrisy anymore. And I think that it, 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 it describes the direction of truth moving in two directions. There's a truth that moves inwards into your life, like a spotlight. The Word of God that has a unique power to penetrate, to cut, as the Scriptures say, to the division of bone and marrow so carefully, of soul and spirit to divide and come in between things inside of you. And so the Word of God shines like a spotlight on your heart and illuminates the darkest corners of you the shameful and secret and hidden parts, and brings them into the light. And at that point, when the Word of God penetrates you in that way and you experience the power of the Holy Spirit, there are no more excuses. There's no more debate where you're trying to, you know, but does God really say, does he mean it? There's no more effort to dismiss and push away the force of the truth. There's no more denying or twisting or, or wriggling out of it, being exposed. You're exposed as the truth moves into you. And that can come in many ways. It can come directly from God by the power of His Holy Spirit as He brings conviction to your soul or from the Scriptures in which His Word penetrates your life. It can come also by an intermediary, somebody who speaks like a preacher or a brother or sister in Christ, someone who exhorts and challenges you. But you feel the spotlight of the Word of God bringing and ex exposing of your heart. And you say, well, God is here. He's speaking to me. But there is also another direction in which this exposing takes place. It's when the truth about you comes out by way of confession. And this is profoundly powerful. I don't think there's a person here who is a follower of Jesus who hasn't tasted the goodness of, and the power and the liberating, extraordinary power of confession. Primarily to God, I mean, but also there can be a power in confessing to brothers and sisters. I think about, you know, one, I think one of my favorite psalms that describes this so vividly is Psalm 32. It's written by David. We know the flaws of the man David. He was not consistently godly. And in Psalm 32, he describes a season of his life when he was weighed down with his sin. And I think he's probably writing about the adultery that he had entered into with Bathsheba. And he says this, listen to these words. He says, when I kept silent, so when I didn't confess, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I think what David's describing here in language that predates the psychological the year of psychology, I think he's describing here depression. And even, perhaps more accurately, spiritual depression. My bones wasting away. He feels physically weak. Your hand heavy upon me. He feels the crushing weight of the presence of God and the conviction of his sin. Because he's a mess. And all the mess is internalized inside of him. And he's screwed up. And he doesn't know what to do. And then he says, I acknowledged my sin to you. This is the turning point in this particular psalm. It's confession. 
I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I didn't try and hide it anymore. I didn't try and pretend it wasn't there anymore. He'd done that for a year. And he felt miserable. I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Can you imagine? Have you felt that yourself at some season? Where the weight of the things that you have done and the shame that is, a, that is part and parcel of the mess we create has so entangled you in darkness and confusion and frustration and depression. And then I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover my iniquity. And you forgave. Because the Father will always forgive the penitent person. Jesus will never turn away someone who comes to him honestly. To me, the experience of unburdening our souls to the Lord and perhaps also to others as a helper in that is it's like taking in fresh air into your lungs. Have you had the experience of being denied oxygen? Perhaps just holding your breath. But also against your will, if you've ever been in a violent wave and been caught in the tumble of the waters under the water, even for just a few seconds, it can feel like an age. And panic begins to grow in your soul. And there's the pressure, I want to breathe. And they say that the pressure, that longing to breathe, is not so much the need for new oxygen, but rather the, the, the desperate need to expel the poison of the carbon dioxide that's accumulating within you. And so you want to breathe out. And confessions like that, you breathe out the mess so that you can breathe in the grace of God, the mercy of God, the acceptance and the love and the grace and forgiveness that is yours in Christ. This is what Paul's describing, I believe, here. Not only are you someone who is aiming to please him, but you're also wanting to bring sin into the light. And what happens to sin when it's in the light? Well, it loses its power. You thought it was an unconquerable desire. Suddenly, it doesn't look that bad after all. And not only does it lose its power, it actually begins to wither away and die like a slug caught on your patio in the sun. It dries out and loses any vitality or, or any impact that it was having upon you. Suddenly, you're free. Suddenly, you're liberated. Now, I don't want to make this over, overly simplistic. I well recognize that it can be difficult within the context of the Christian life to consistently walk in the freedom that's ours in Christ. But the method and model of how we change is always the same. Come back to him. Confess. Expose what is dark in you. And let the light of Christ shine in you. And what happens then? Well, you become an integrated person. Remember, I've been describing how you're divided. And it's a division that makes you miserable. But the psalmist prays in Psalm 86, 11, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Some translations have it. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. It's what the Lord Jesus Christ literally described as the single eye. I love this expression of what godliness is. He's saying that there is no division. You're, there are not many parts to you. You become an integrated person because the longings that are deep inside you match the experiences and the profession, the outworking of your faith. There are no parts. You are one. You're united. And to become integrated again is the healing work of the Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel. That is what he wants to do and what he is accomplishing in us. It's so what sanctification means, what transformation is, what it means to become more like Jesus. Christ had no divisions. He was not conflicted. He was not made up of many parts. He was the, the, the only integrated man. He was one man, and that's what he wants for you. You're willing, then, to expose sin. Finally, you're, you're, you become alert. You are alert, I should say. And awake to God. Listen to the last verse that we're looking at here, verse 14. He says, For anything that is, becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, 
and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Awake, arise, Christ will shine on you. Now it's possible, I think, to go through life spiritually asleep. Lulled into a slumber and a lethargy that is not worthy of your profession. Of course, the Bible says that anybody who isn't a believer is dead in their sins. And that's a passage we looked at earlier in Ephesians. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That was your past life. And to come to know God is the original version of being awakened or woke. It's being woken up by God's Spirit to be alive to Him. And that's what happens when you become a believer. But there can be a slumber that creeps in even in the life of the Christian. Where passion begins to wane, zeal begins to die down, the love for God is no longer what it was, and urgency is not there. There isn't a desperate need to, or, or sense of felt need to put things right straight away. And when that's true of you, when you keep putting things off, when you say, later, I'll deal with this later, you hit the snooze on the alarm clock, you're asleep. You're slumbering spiritually. I find it interesting that <clears throat> increasingly this is being observed as a kind of mental or psychological condition for men in particular who are addicted to pornography. And certainly true for those who have had some kind of religious uh, some kind of faith, but also then find themselves trapped in this. Mark Regnerus talks about this in his book, Cheap Sex, when he said that porn use deadens religious impulses. He said there's a connection between pornography and what was once called acedia. It's not a word that we use these days, but it's, he describes it as a listlessness or apathy. And he goes on to say that the end result is spiritual passivity. And of course, we know this is true not only in this particular area of vice or sin that can so easily entangle someone and, and, and make you feel like you're stuck in the bottom of a well with no way out. But it's true of many other indulgences as well. Too much comfort, too much ease, too much indulgence and pleasure-seeking in any way in your life can ultimately render you spiritually asleep and inert and dead to the urgency of the call of Christ. You don't hear it anymore, any more than you hear when you sleep through your alarm clocks. And it seems to me that this was a constant frustration for the Apostle Paul. There are numerous passages in the New Testament in which he directly challenges this among believers, this sleepiness, spiritual sleepiness. And no wonder, because here's a man who, of course, had, been, who had experienced such a radical turnaround within his own life that all of the years after having encountered Jesus were lived in the light of that one event, that, that powerful transformation of that encounter he had with Jesus. Because before that, don't forget, he was a bounty hunter, religious fanatic, who'd made it his mission to arrest and execute Christians. And then experiencing the grace of God, that God would not only save him from sin, but also then commission him to be a servant of Jesus. He forever lived in the light of that, that transforming moment, that moment of conversion. He forever lived in the light of that. So it was, it was, it was defining for him. Years later, when he's writing to his, his protege, Timothy, he says that this is a, a trustworthy saying that Christ came to sin, save sinners, of whom I am the worst. And I don't think he ever shook that honest sense that he had been the worst of sinners. And he said, the reason Christ saved me was to prove that his mercy is enough for you. So whatever you've been entangled in, whatever mess you find is true of your life right now, he says, look, if, if, if the Apostle Paul could, cut, could go from being a murderer to being a servant of Jesus, Jesus can do it in you too. You do realize that, don't you? And then he has this, this unbelievable 
passion and urgency to live for Jesus from that day on. He's uncontainable in his zeal and the sense of mission that has gripped his life because he knows the world must hear about the grace of the Lord in the gospel. People need to know that Christ has died for their sins. They need to know that he's raised from the dead, that that changes absolutely everything about your life in the here and now, and that everything should be lived in the light of that truth. And this drove him. It called him. It meant that he couldn't rest. He couldn't stop. He couldn't, he couldn't give up, though many times he was tempted to. And he describes it. He uses vivid language to describe this urgency. He talks about himself in the language of, of being like an athlete, who, be, who, who, who exercises self-control and discipline to receive a prize. He talks about it as being like a boxer, but he says, I don't box the air, I beat my body. Lest, he says, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So because Paul had this, 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 this almost nuclear power at work within him, so much energy and desire and longing to run after Christ in view of what he'd encountered in Jesus... He couldn't abide a spiritual apathy. And he keeps talking to believers in numerous letters in this way. Think about these words in Romans 13. He says, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality and sensuality and quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He says something very similar. First Thessalonians 5, where again, I think the urgency comes through. This longing that believers just wake up. He says, you're aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. None of us know when your life will be snuffed out or Christ will return. You don't know. And so he says, you're not to walk in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. You weren't ready. You kept putting it off. You kept thinking, I'll get right with God one day. I'll sort my life out one day. I'll, I'll, I'll deal with this problem, this sin, one day, but just not yet. I'm, you know, I've got some living to do. I'm too young. He says, it'll surprise you. Don't let it surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Are you awake, friend? You know, back in 2004, I remember vividly because it was, it was the same time that I just began dating my wife, but tragic news broke on uh, around Christmas of 2004 that there had been that horrific tsunami that took place in Southeast Asia. That enormous wave just took so many lives and wrought so much destruction in its wake. And in the years that followed, occasionally you'd hear stories of individuals who had been on the beach and they'd seen the rapid retreat of the water as the water was pulled back out to sea. And you see this in the miniature whenever you, you see a wave. You know, the water pulls out and then it comes in. But this was happening on a scale unlike anything you'd ever expect to see. And some people understood what was happening and became alert to it and began running around warning others, we need to get to higher ground, we need to get to higher ground. And the Apostle Paul's like that. As he goes around and talks to believers, as he preaches and as he writes letters to the churches, he's saying, wake up, people. This life is, is a blink. Your days are numbered. And you don't even know how many there are. And Christ is Lord. And he's called you and he owns you and he wants you. He wants you to live for him for his pleasure. 
And so he says, wake up. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You know, there may be some of you who feel that in talking so directly around these areas, particularly of sexual morality, but of course it applies to other sins as well, that there's a certain heaviness that, that accompanies these warnings. And I don't think that the apostle wanted us in any way to leave heavy because ultimately what he wants is to bring us through to that place where we're completely liberated and free and, and have the lightness of spirit because we know that we have discarded those things that, that contradict our faith. He doesn't want you to sit in fear for very long or in condemnation or with a heaviness or a joylessness because that is not the natural state for the Christian. You can find yourself in those state when you turn your back on Jesus and you try to grab things for yourself that do not belong to you. But when you wake up, there is joy and there is a lightness and there is warmth and there is affection and there is a sense of freedom that comes to you. And there may be different experiences for each of us in this room. There are some of you who have never actually become a Christian. Maybe that's only just dawned on you or maybe you've known that for some time that you, you're not a, you would not have called yourself a believer. And the call of the scriptures is the same. Wake up. Wake up because Jesus is Lord and he loves you. He wants to save you. He wants to change your life. He wants to put you back together. He wants to give you that sense of being an integrated whole, living your life before the face of God. And if that is something that you want to do, friend, all you have to do is say yes to him. Yes, there'll be pain in turning your back on the old life, but it will be worth it. But I think also that the force of the language that Paul is using here when, he's, when he speaks in this way is actually directed at believers. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Has your spiritual life fallen into a slumber, a lethargy, so that there is barely, so you're barely conscious to God and his voice and his presence in you? Awake. And Paul says, when you're awake, Christ will shine on you. You know, there is nothing like the joy and the exhilaration and the happiness that you experience as a child of God than when you are living completely before his face, exposing the sin, getting rid of it, living for the pleasure of the Father. And he constantly pours his grace upon the repentant soul. He wants to do that for you. Is the Lord calling you to wake up? Would you bow your heads? Let's pray.